As that's happening, uh, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, not a problem, just slip up your hand. And we want to get a Bible in your hand this morning. Everyone is going to need one. What we do at Grace Athens is really simple. We just open the scriptures and we see what they say. Uh, and we try and live those together. And so uh, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and we'll get it to you. We're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 4. Uh, and that is the parable of the sower. We're going to go back into that. Um, and here's what I believe. I believe God was really speaking to our congregation this last Sunday through that parable. Um, opening up uh, the truths of the gospel to us in some really needed ways uh, that I think our contemporary American church needs to hear right now. And so we're going to get more into that. But before we do, um, there's something that I need to share with you prior to digging into these verses. And it's something that quite honestly has just been bothering me for a long time. It's not so much pertaining to our church. It's kind of the church at large in America. And it's been bothering me for some years and I just felt like I was not supposed to keep silent about it um, and felt led uh, to share about that a little bit more this morning before we dig into these verses, which we will do. Here's what it is. There's something that's desperately amiss in our American churches right now. Um, you see, it, it's really easy to miss the core of something. You know that, right? It's just easy to miss the core to not get the main thing be the main thing. And to miss, for us, the very core of the faith, which is the gospel. The gospel is the core of the core for any Christian church. You can think that you got everything else right on the periphery of Christianity, but if you miss the core of the faith, the center of the center of the center, you miss it all. And what that is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to sacred scripture. That's what the core is. But friends, and many of you are aware of this, I'm hyper aware of it because I'm on the inside of the inside being a pastor. There's a gospel being put out there right now in the American church landscape that is devoid of scripture. A gospel that's devoid of the four gospels. And here's what I know is that I don't want any other Christianity but biblical gospel Christianity. Here's why. Because there isn't anything else, anything else that isn't rooted and saturated and gets its origin from Scripture is just false. It's just not biblical Christianity. And it pains me to say this, but... I don't know that the apostles of the early church would even recognize what's in many of our churches today. And I believe that I'm preaching to the choir because I don't know that you'd be here uh, if, if you didn't resonate with that. But I still think it needs to be said. I think that we're so far from the biblical gospel that they preached in the early church, the apostolic gospel of Christ. I think we're so far from that today. And I think we're so far from the New Testament vision of what the normal Christian life should be and look like. And if you haven't been paying attention, there truly is. And you that know me well enough know that I'm not some 
You know, I, I'm not someone who loves to call out heresy or heretics or anything of the sort. I'm not big. You're not going to hear a lot of me talking about truth or error in the pulpit, although when it's in the scriptures, I do. Um, that's not a drum that I beat often, but I, I, I think it needs to be said. There's a lot of false gospels out there in our churches today. Not in the world. Not in the world. But in our churches that bear Christ's name. And I believe that it angers and grieves the Lord Jesus that we've turned from the gospel of Scripture. That it's, it's, it's it, the gospels that are being put out there, that they're like biblical enough, right? They have like enough trappings of New Testament like language or ideas that we think suffice, but they're so far in reality from what Jesus preached. And I just know and believe that Jesus should have the reward of his suffering. He should have that. And that only comes through the gospel of the New Testament. And instead, there are thousands of pastors. Again, I know this because I'm on the inside. There are thousands of pastors that are peddling a gospel that does not have Christ at the center of it. What it has at the center of it is man. Let me explain. They preach a false gospel that revolves around man getting something out of God. Getting something from God. Sneaking one past God. And let me tell you something. Christianity doesn't exist to give you something. It exists because it's true. That's why it exists. And you can choose to align your life with that ultimate saving reality of the gospel or perish in a self-centered delusion. The gospel doesn't beg people to believe it. That's not what you find in the book of Acts. Rather, it's an announcement of what's already true. Ultimate reality according to God Almighty. And you can either be saved into that gospel reality or perish without it. And I believe there's thousands of American Christians that are without even knowing it, unaware of what the pulpit is actually preaching. So many churchgoers are being led astray by what I think the New Testament calls false preachers. And it's a tragedy. Let me tell you, Danielle and I, my wife Danielle, who's off for a cousin's wedding, um, I, could, I could count on both fingers the amount of people every single year we've been here. It's been almost 10. Has it been 10? I think it has been 10. Well, we have people come to our church who say, I just can't find any other Bible that really preaches and teaches Scripture. I, I just can't find any other church that, that, that really does that. Now, let me tell you this. I can name some churches in this community. I don't believe that when they, they tell me that. To an extent. But we have people all the time come to us talking about they're going to these churches that, that aren't teaching and preaching Scripture. And it's shocking to me. Then, then what else are you doing what exactly are you doing week to week? It's because if preachers don't preach this verse by verse each week, then I'm just confused on what they're doing. What are they preaching? What religion are they coming up with on their own? 
That's the stakes. It's either the religion, the faith of Jesus Christ, or put that aside, whatever else is coming out of their mouth. That's how black and white it is. What happens is if it's coming up with whatever is on their own minds, what happens is it becomes this Americanized, individualistic, self is king, get what you can out of life, false gospel that they're preaching. It's a false gospel of getting. That's at the core. It's getting. It's getting something. But when I read the New Testament, all I see is its opposite. It's a gospel of giving. Christ giving his life for ours and we giving our life back to God in return. There's no getting. There's no such thing as Christian self-centered spirituality. You're not going to find that in the Bible. You'll find that in the world. But pastors across the nation are preaching it. And it is so subtle and it is so hard to find sometimes, but it is there. There's some that are just clearly prosperity gospel. I'm not even talking about those. They're just easy to see or just disaligned with scripture. But there are others that seem biblical enough, gospel light enough, but at its core is really about getting something out of God and not giving our entire life back to God in love and communion. And so, friends, I believe the enemy in many ways is no longer outside the church, but it's within it. And I'm not an alarmist, but I think that in, re- in, in reality, the enemy is the false gospel that's now within the church that's corroding it from within. And I just have to ask the question, what are we going to be left with in this nation a century from now? If churches that bear the name of Christ aren't even preaching the gospel of the scriptures. And I just think someone needs to call it out. And I've sat on my hands for some time. I mean, you've heard some of this from me. But I felt led to just put it out there black and white. At the end of the day, we at Grace Athens want nothing but gospel Christianity. We want nothing but biblical Christianity. We want nothing but the God of the Bible. Because anything else is an idol and nothing else will save you. Nothing else will bring you to God. And nothing else will give you real joy. Which is what God intends to do with all those that he reconciles to himself. Nothing else will do. I just think the stakes couldn't be any higher in the American church today. You you know these people. You know what I'm talking about. You know Christians. You know churches. You know whole so-called Christian movements that are being led astray into an unbiblical, coddling, self-indulgent slop of totally deconstructed and dismantled Christianity. It's not recognizable by the New Testament or Jesus the Lord. It's not the Christianity of Christ and the apostles. I think we need to call it out. I think we need to be sensitive to it. I think we need to be compassionate about it. I think when people have questions, that is an amazing thing. This is a church that embraces questions because questions lead to deeper, more biblical answers. This is a church that welcomes doubts because doubts, when done rightly inside the walls of the church with an open Bible, not creating some false thing that's not even Christianity so that we feel better at night. But when doubts are handled rightly, constructively inside the church, doubts can lead to deeper faith. Jesus loved to ask questions. 
and pull out any doubts that might have been there. Think of Thomas at the end in the resurrection, showing him his side. He, he did yell at Thomas. He said, Thomas, come here. He was gentle with him. He said, come here. Jesus lifts his shirt, puts his hand on his side, pulls out his hands and shows him the nail marks in his wrist. He wasn't condemning of Thomas. He said, I'll take your doubt and I'm going to lead you into deeper faith. It's a faith that's built, that's built on the truth. And so, I think the takeaway is this, and then we'll get into the passage. Let us be mindful as a church, as a community, as households, lest we fall into the same trap. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we call on your name now. We confess that we're not above this. We confess, Lord, that we want it to grieve our heart like it grieves yours. Lord, help us to not be apathetic to the church here in America. Help us not to be apathetic about the future of the gospel. Help us not to be apathetic about what we're leaving our children and grandchildren in the church. Help us not to just go on with business as as usual and not call it out and pray and welcome in all those who need your gospel. God, I pray that you would make Grace Athens love you, the God of the Bible, and want the real thing of the real thing of the real thing. Protect us, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Let's go to the word now. We're going to pick up where we left off in Mark's gospel. Chapter 4, verse 10, he's already said the parable, but now we're going to get into him explaining the parable. And so it reads this. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. Oh, you know what? I said verse 10. I'm reading verse 1. All right, go to verse 10. And when he was alone, those around Jesus with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. He goes on in verse 12. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let's pause there. What you find here in these two verses is that Jesus makes a very important uh, distinction that we need to pay attention to. It's in verse 11. He says, but for those outside, it's the key word, everything is in parables. So in Jesus' mind, what you can take from that verse and from other places in the Gospels is that there's a single dividing line that runs throughout all of humanity. And according to him, that dividing line is this. There are some who are insiders and some who are outsiders. Verse 11, but for those outside, there's an outsider and there's an insider. He says everything is in parables. And so you want to ask the question, okay, Jesus, well, then who are the insiders? That seems important. We'll take a look at verse 11. He makes the distinction. He says to you, speaking to his followers, and, and more closely, his, his 12, it says in verse 10, the 12 disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Doesn't that just sound interesting? Did you know there was a secret of the kingdom of God? Well, I didn't know it until Jesus said it. 
There's a secret of the kingdom of God. And what distinguishes an insider and an outsider is those who have been given the secret. That's what Jesus distinguishes as the insider. And he says the outsider, everything's given to them in parables. It's a great scholar I've been reading to help me through the Gospels. It's James Edwards. If we can go to that, ver- uh, that quote, it reads this. It is the secret that the kingdom of God has come in the person and words and works of Jesus. That is a secret because God has chosen to reveal himself indirectly and in a veiled way. The incarnate word is not obvious. Only faith could recognize the Son of God in the lowly figure of Jesus of Nazareth. The secret of the kingdom of God is the secret of the person of Jesus. Fascinating. So the secret is recognizing Jesus of Nazareth, the the carpenter's son, who there's rumors about his mother becoming pregnant before they were married, Believers say she was impregnated uh, through the power of the Spirit. Others say, no, he, he, he's a bastard child, and he was, this was not, uh, uh, he was not a product of a, of a married couple. He's the carpenter's son, illegitimate marriage, and he's going around starting a whole new campaign, talking about the kingdom of God, and preaching and teaching and performing miracles. But he's this lowly figure from this poor backwoods place in the empire called Nazareth. You wouldn't necessarily look at him, Isaiah even talks about this, and ascertain by your own human intellect, son of God. Does that make sense? So it's the secret of the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 11, it uses the word given. Given. This means knowledge of the secret is a gift. It's given. Your mother gives you a gift on Christmas. It's given from God and it's not a human achievement. And it goes on to those on the outside. Jesus says everything is in parables. Let's talk about outsiders. You see, at that time, many observant Jews around Jesus uh, just assumed they were insiders. The the scribes would have assumed that. He does a lot of debates with them. The Pharisees assumed that they were just insiders with the kingdom of God. The zealots assumed that. They were kind of like a militant uh, group that wanted to establish the kingdom of God through uh, violence. And they thought they were the inside and that everyone else was on the outside. But those are not the dividing lines that Jesus drew with. And his lines, Jesus' lines, thankfully, are not drawn with permanent marker. They could change on who's on the inside or the outside. What you're going to find as we go through the Gospel of Mark is some outsiders eventually become insiders. The demoniac in chapter 5. The woman with the flow of blood in chapter 5 as well. A Gentile centurion towards the end in chapter 15. And perhaps in chapter 12, even a scribe that was originally against him. And likewise, what you're going to find in the gospel is that some insiders, such as Judas, eventually become outsiders. Now here's the deal. Let's bring this home. Insiders and outsiders. Talks about all throughout the gospel of Mark. Here's the deal. We could each name names of people that were once outsiders to the kingdom of God and are now insiders. You know those people. You might be one of those individuals. Far, far, far from the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. I, in some ways, probably fit the bill on that one back in high school. Tragically, we could also name some names of people who, as Jesus says, were once on the inside and are now on the outside. Once they were inside his church, you know those people, you went to church with those people. 
They were once inside the fellowship of believers. They seemed to love God's word and wanted to live for the mission of Jesus, not just for themselves. They seemed to have every indication of being an insider to the kingdom of God. But now they're on the outside. You see, the Bible is replete with words and descriptions for those that eventually forsake Christ. Insiders becoming outsiders. Those that totally deconstruct and deconvert from the faith. And the contemporary church, in my opinion, is not doing a good job of warning and showing their people this scary reality that can happen, that happens every day in the Bible. Why wouldn't they do that? The Bible talks about it, and it's really important. Why wouldn't they talk about it? Fear that they might offend them? How about the godly fear that they might lose them? Shouldn't that take precedent? What I want to give you is some examples of those who were once insiders, as Jesus talks about, and later uh, forsook Christ. The Bible talks all about this exact act of once being here in the fellowship of the church and now out here. It has all kinds of different descriptions. If we can bring it to the screen. Apostasy in 2 Thessalonians. Falling away. The New Testament talks about shipwreck of faith. Turning back from following the Lord. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. That's Hebrews 10. That, that passage will. It's like a bucket of cold water. Read that when you need to. Going out from us, 1 John, cutting off of a branch, becoming disqualified, turning away from listening to the truth, denying the master who bought them. All over the New Testament are these examples of folks that tragically go that route. There's three examples as I was studying this this week. There's three examples in Scripture that personally terrify me. Terrify me. The first one is with the Apostle Paul. He selected this man named Demas, Demas, D-E-M-A-S, or Demas, however you might want to say that. Well, I heard it pronounced Demas, uh, to be his close companion in the ministry. Paul chose him to be on the, the inner team. And in Philemon, chapter 1, you see his name pop up. It says, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So he's named next to Luke, who's really important. Wrote the Gospel of Luke, was a companion of Paul on the inner team. Wrote the uh, book of Acts. Demas is right there in the inner uh, team. And so here's what we have to ascertain. This is why this is important. Demas must have looked enough like a true Christian to the Apostle Paul. You get that, right? To put him on his inner team of ministry, right? I mean, he had enough of the character and fruit that's, that, 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 that said to Paul, I'm going to put him on the team like Luke. It's a big deal. Look what Paul says towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy. He's in jail. He's about to be beheaded by the Roman state. And he says this about what happened to the life story of Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. 
The issue there is that word, in love. That's strong language. You know, when you're talking with someone, when you get engaged, and someone's like, tell me the story, how did that happen, right? You don't talk about, well, you know, it was just a good fit. Um, I, I think we have the same interests, and uh, they're also mindful of their 401k, and uh, things just kind of seem to line up, and I like this individual a lot, and so I proposed on the mountain with all the cameras and made the biggest deal of it that I ever could, and, uh, and now we're getting now married, right? No. You use that language. We're in love. I love Danielle. It, was, it wasn't even a choice. I knew what I wanted to do. I was in love. And so I had to be with her. I, I proposed. And now we're getting married. Right? It says Demas was in love with this present world, this worldly culture, more than Christ. And so he quit the ministry. And many scholars believe he quit the faith altogether. Hello. How many Christians, let's be real, we're, we're, let's have a conversation. I'll do all the talking, you just gotta listen. Think of it as a conversation. Love when preachers say, I, I, I just preach conversationally. Well, did they say anything back to you? It's, no, that's a monologue, man. Think of it this way. How many Christians, tragically, have we seen fall away because they fell in love with current cultural or political movements more than Christ? And the kingdom of God. Now again, it's not permanent marker. I'm not telling you to do that. You're not to decide who's insiders and outsiders. Could Jesus paint with different lines and it can change? That's both fortunate and unfortunate. How many people do we know that became more infatuated by this present world than by Christ and the coming of his new world? In the kingdom of God. On both sides of the political aisle. On both sides of the cultural landscape. Infatuated. I've had several conversations where I said. Man if you were this zealous for for the cause of Christ. We'd win the world. In love. Is what happened to Demas. Quit the ministry. The second alarming example is of two other men that Paul names in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. First Timothy 1 should come to the screen. It says this, this, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, rejecting what? A good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Shipwreck, by rejecting a good conscience, made shipwreck of their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander. What happened to these men? Well, it says they rejected a good conscience. Well, how do you do that? It sounds important. It's when your conscience is telling you something like this. These desires that you have for sin, whatever that particular sin is in your life, these, these desires that you have for that are not good and right. They're, they're not of Christ. They're not going to lead you the ship of your life where you want it to go. They're saying, listen, your conscience is telling you, listen, lest you shipwreck on those rocks. You can't navigate those on your own. Stop feeding those desires. Take them to Christ. Let his grace and the blood-bought power of the cross totally 
conquer them in your life. And that's an ongoing decade process. But do that. Don't just business as usual with the ship of your life. Think you can navigate those rocks. They're deadly. You'll shipwreck your faith. Is what Paul says to him. And they did. They did. They ignored the voice. They didn't change course. And so they shipwrecked their faith. Final example that terrifies me is not from Paul. It's from the Apostle Peter. It's 2 Peter 2.20. It reads like this. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that tells you a lot about the gospel. How do they escape the defilements of the world? Well, through the knowledge, the faith knowing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them, in what? The defilements of the world, and overcome or engulfed by them. The last state has become worse than the first, is what Peter, the great friend of Jesus, says to his congregation. What's the picture here? They escape the defilements of the world, like all of us did who have done that through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They began in sanctification, but they didn't end there. What does it say? It says that they got entangled and engulfed in the defilements of the world once again, and the last state has become worse than the first. Friends, here's what I want to tell you because I care. (laughs) None of us are above this. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Bible. And these were men and women walking close to Christ and to the apostles and seeing miracles and all kinds of things. The the genesis of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, they they saw things they couldn't unsee. They tasted things they couldn't untaste. They felt the power of Christ coming through. And thing after thing happened or didn't happen in their life and they turned. How much more must we watch over our own hearts lest we become another name? Back to the parable. So for Jesus, there's insiders and outsiders. We established that. There's two kinds of people and they correspond to the seed sown on either good soil or bad soil. Remember that from last week? It's good soil or bad soil. Those who hear in faith, even if they don't fully understand it, I did not fully understand the gospel when I first heard it. But by his his grace and all kinds of different things coming together, what happened was I was given the secret of the kingdom of God, as it says. And so were you. Good soil, insiders. Okay? That's how he's dividing it. Those who casually hear, not in faith, the gospel, goes out one ear and out the other, which is even the grammar you see in the Greek text, doesn't take root in the soil of their heart. That's bad soil. And those are outsiders. Good soil, insiders, bad soil, outsiders in the mind of Christ. The entire thing hangs on the kind of hearing. That's the key word. The kind of hearing you give the gospel, or what it's called here, the word, interchangeable kind of hearing you give. You'll see that the word, that phrase, appears eight times in the parable. And the command to hear in faith happens four times. Let's take a look. This is Jesus explaining it. Look for that whole connection. 
Verse 13. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So it's an important one. He goes on. The sower sows. You remember, that's Jesus. The word. That's the gospel. Verse 15. He's going to give four different examples. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Verse 16. Another example. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, the gospel they're believing in. Knowledge of the gospel, 2 Peter 2.20, that leads them to salvation. Immediately, Jesus says, they fall away. Let me pause here. Sometimes when I read scripture... I just have to remind myself, this is Jesus talking here. <laughs> it's so easy to be a Christian who isn't mindful of who they're reading, right? This is the Lord of the universe giving his ideas and opinions. I better listen, right? He says that Satan can immediately come and take it away. Well, I'm kind of drifting into this theology that's starting to kind of get away from some, some of those realities. And I, that's fine. You go through different seasons, do it in the church, let the Lord lead you deeper into the scriptural way. But, but I, I've been I've drifting a little bit more from that. And Satan honestly, how does that work, right? Well, well Jesus just said that, that, that Satan's involved. And he can steal away the gospel seed from someone's heart. Okay, all right. I'm going to redirect and come back to that truth. That's how it works, friends. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I've seen that. I've seen that as you get into your 30s, into your 40s. In some ways, it's not because I'm more spiritual. It's because I'm a pastor and the, the riches of the world are a little bit different in my scenario. And so it's not that I think that I'm above some of... Uh, People I could name who I've, I've seen them in the grips of being choked out right now. And it's upsetting. He ends, it says that the word proves unfruitful. That's the whole thing is fruit harvest. Jesus says it proves unfruitful. So what do we have here, friends? What's the data? What's Jesus talking about? Well, simple. There's three types of people, according to Jesus, corresponding to three kinds of hearings. Bring it to the screen. First one, those from whom Satan steals the word. Second, those with no root who fall away in difficulty. The third, those whose wealth and worldly desires choke the word. Choke the word. It's, it's in there. But it's being squeezed and choked by every fleeting ambition for something bigger. And Christ and his kingdom. These three kinds of people, they give the gospel casual hearing, right? Their failure to hear confirms them as outsiders and the word of God becomes fruitless to them. Verse 19, it proves unfruitful. Three kinds of casual hearing. In verse 20, there's a different kind of hearing. That's what matters. One who's hearing the gospel in faith by grace. Take a look at it. Verse 20. Jesus says, but those that were sown on the good soil, 
are the ones who hear the word and accept it or receive it and bear fruit. 30-fold, Jesus says, 60-fold, Jesus says, and a hundred-fold, Jesus says. And here's what's interesting. You get inside the language here, the, the, the grammar of it. Uh, the verb tense for hearing here in verse 20 changes. He says here four times. It changes in verse 20. And in verse 20, it's different than the other three. Here's what happens. It's suddenly replaced by the present tense of the verb, signifying a continual and ongoing hearing of Christ's word and receiving of Christ's word and bearing fruit of that word. Because we all know, some people like to have a Christianity that the, the, the starting line is the finish line, right? There's no like real Christian walk of receiving the gospel more and more. We think we graduate from the gospel. The gospel is the thing that got me saved. I'm over the starting line and the finish line. Now I'm just coming to Christian. Tell me the deep stuff, man. Right? That's not how it works. You're continually receiving the seed of the gospel, the core of the faith. Ongoing hearing is the, is the grammar that changes. So people who are engaged in the fourth kind of hearing, you guessed it, those are the insiders that Jesus is describing, not prescribing. He's not saying, be good soil. He's just describing what's, how someone hears, how we heard the gospel. And what you find in verse 20, look for it, is this threefold thing that's happening. I believe we have a, yeah, there we go. Threefold thing in verse 20. Hearing, receiving, bearing fruit. Hearing, receiving, bearing fruit. That's the process. Hear the word, receive the word, or heed the word, believe the word, and then the word bears fruit because it's seed. That's the threefold ongoing combination for a disciple of Jesus, an insider. That we spend the rest of our days, however long they are, continually doing this thing in fellowship with the Lord. Hearing, receiving, bearing fruit. Hearing, receiving, bearing fruit. In season, out of season, that's what a Christian does. Hearing, receiving, bearing fruit. So that's true, according to Jesus. That's what we're busy doing. How do you go about doing that? How do you do that? Can I have it back? It's not hard. Actually, take it away. Take it away real quick. We're going to play a game. What are the three? Number one. Number two. You're a disciple. All right. How do you do that daily? What's the key to doing that? Biblically. Not my just idea, but biblically. Right? Well, I did some digging. Had some help. And I believe our answer is found in a very important, effective connection between what Jesus says here and what he says in the famous passage on the vine and the branches in John's gospel. So I'm going to bring it to the screen because I want you to stay at Mark 4 and I will show you the connection. This is where we're going to end. But we're asking, how do we actually do the work of the disciple by his grace? So John 15, famous passage. Look for the connection. It reads this. This is Jesus speaking. Same imagery, same things he's working with. Vines, fruit, harvest, seed, all those things. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, also the word abide, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Simple as that. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. It goes on. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. Harvest hundredfold. Remember that verse 20? Showing yourselves to be my disciples. Let's end by showing the connection. There's two actions here described by Jesus. Did you catch it? He talks about there's a remaining in him that's corresponding to his words remaining in you. Look at verse 7. I don't have the verse, but it's right there. It says, if you. Two actions. If you remain in me, Jesus says, and my words remain in you. Remaining in him and his words remaining in you. Well, what does it mean to remain in Christ? We've got to get the first part, right? If you remain in me, what does it mean to remain or abide in Christ? It's, it's, it's straightforward. It's to stay close in daily fellowship. It's ongoing communication and communion with him throughout your day. I know the days I'm walking with Jesus, abiding and remaining in him, when just everyday things are coming up and I'm going to him. I'm in prayer. I'm, I'm keeping the connection established. I see something as I'm driving. I can easily pass it by. Hmm, whatever. Could, could have been an alarming situation or just something look off. I take it to him and pray. Something happens with my kids. I'm in Romans 8, that spiritual mindedness that it talks about. Something happens with my kids. I normally could just move on, but it strikes me. I'm not in the flesh today, I'm in the spirit, as it talks about in Galatians. And so I take it to him and pray. Lord, help shape it. Protect her from that. That's what it means to remain in him. It's communication and communion. In prayer with him, in the Bible, in fellowship, remain. Let me ask this. What happens when you naturally are close to the person and voice of Christ? His words remain in you. Haven't been close to that person in college in a long time. Haven't talked to him, haven't been around him. No fellowship, right? Right? You got nothing to say about what they've said. Their words aren't remaining in you because you're not in fellowship with them. I got all kinds of words from Danielle that remain in me during the day. Sometimes they're sweet words. I like those. Sometimes they're words of correction. Those are tough. I'm trying to get rid of those, but they still stay. They remain. How do we do that? Well, when you're close to Christ, when if you remain in me, then my words, they will remain in you. Friends, let's connect the passages. What causes the fruitful harvest in a Christian life according to Christ? It's his words getting inside you in the heart and bearing their fruit. It's the seed of his words germinating inside you daily and bearing a hundredfold harvest of fruit. No seed, no harvest. I want to have a peach orchard. I ain't got a seed. You ain't going to have a tree. No fruit. No seed, no harvest. No word, no harvest. No fruitful harvest. No warrant to believe you're a disciple. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples.
As we'll close it, the secret to a true Christian life is the word of Christ. The word does the work. The seed of the word bears its fruit in your life. And so here's the takeaway. All you have to do is get to his word. All, hear that if you hear any sentence this morning. All you have to do is get to his word. The seed germinates the fruit, not you. Get to his word. Get the seed. You're not going to have a peach orchard if there's no seed. Get to the seed. And the seed will bear the fruit. It's amazing what God can do with a man or woman who gets to his word. Who just gets there. It doesn't matter what it takes. I'm going to get there. Maybe I failed yesterday, but I'm not going to wallow in guilt three weeks and not get to it again. And throw out my whole Bible reading plan. And it's not always... It certainly is directly by going to the scripture itself, but it's reading books that are saturated with, with, with biblical thought. I, I put on a sermon. It doesn't matter. Get to the word. Get to the seed. And if you get to the seed, I mean, I, I get so spiritually frustrated in all these cycles that I wallow in failure and all these different things of trying to grow and holiness and witness and just falling short, right? I get all this, just fuss over it. It just says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, just get to his words and they'll do the work. The word is the seed. How are you going to have fruit without first having a seed? Can I be real with you? It's the key to finally conquering that lust inside your heart, men. And replacing it with the fruit of purity. Get the seed. And it'll grow purity in your life. Oh God, I need that. I, I need that. It's the key to finally conquering your incessant need to be liked, women. And replacing it with the fruit of fearless godliness. That's what it says about Abraham's wife. Fearless. She was a godly woman. She didn't live by the whims of being liked or not liked. That's for us too, men. Get the seed. Get to the word daily. Because the seed is the one thing that can produce a harvest of holiness in your life. I end with what he says. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen.